Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. How's everybody doing today? Good. How are the people in this shade doing? How are the people in this shade doing? How are the brave sun-dwelling people doing? Awesome. We need to get some, like, sun chairs for this spot, like those big lounger chairs or something like that. <laughs> we might as well. We're halfway to a music festival already with all this, so. Awesome. Well, uh, today, I, I would like to talk about being a disciple of Jesus. How does that sound? Sounds good? Being a disciple of Jesus. So when, uh, most of you who, who know me know that I've, you know, I've, um, uh, I've been a Christian most of my life. I got saved when I was three years old uh, at, the, at the post office. Um, I'm not going to share that story today, but <laughs> that's, where I, that's where I met Jesus. And um, so I, I grew up in the church and, uh, you know, gr- grew up around Christianity, learning about Jesus. And so I started being a disciple of Jesus when I was three years old. Now, when I, when I was young, um, I, I kind of viewed the idea of, like, being a disciple of Jesus of, it's kind of a binary thing, like, Okay, I was I was you know not serving Jesus, and now I am a disciple of Jesus. I just you know kind of boom boom. I you know from the ages of one to to two, I was not serving Jesus, and then at the age of three, started serving Jesus. That was kind of a joke. You can laugh at that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so, but the the longer I've uh, been following him, the more I've realized that it's not just a switch. It's not just a, a moment. It is as far as salvation it is as far as starting that journey with him. But being a disciple of Jesus is an ongoing process of, of growth, of, of maturity, of, of change, of transformation, of learning more and more and more of who he is. I mean, again, it makes sense because we're all finite beings who are serving an infinite God. It would make sense that we'd be just learning who he is more and more and more. And you know, again, when I was younger, I would think of the idea of repentance as being um, something I did once. Like, okay, I have repented, and if I do something bad, I, I repent again. And when we think of repentance as I did something bad, and now I'm, you know, receiving my, my discipline for that, and then, you know, moving onward, uh, I think it can be a little bit limiting. I think that is an aspect of what repentance is, but I think on the deeper level what repentance is that, in fact, that word literally means to change your mind. I think of it less as, oh man, I keep messing up, I keep making mistakes, and more as Jesus, the one I am discipled to. And the word disciple simply means follower. As a follower of Jesus, as someone who is following and imitating Jesus, trying to be like him, I am not so much... my life in him is less about like failing along the way and more about receiving little adjustments of like, no, actually I'm like this. No, actually I'm like this. No, actually I'm like this. And getting this clearer and clearer understanding of who he is. Now I think this is true because this seems to be the experience that his disciples were having. And so I, I want to take you real quick to one of my favorite stories of uh, an adjustment moment where Jesus uh, adjusts the perspective of people around him. This is in the book of John Chapter 8. If I can open my Bible with one hand. Yes, I can. John chapter 8. Um, 
Let's go, yeah, let's go with uh, verse 2. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, a great moment. The, the expectations of the day, the expectations even maybe of his disciples, Jesus makes a huge adjustment and just handles it so well as he always does. So John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of, of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such a woman. Uh, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably because they were the smartest. That's just my, that's my ad there. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked, uh, and asked her, uh, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. Uh, no one, sir, she said. Uh, sorry, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some versions say, go and sin no more. Man, this is a great moment. This is so good. This is Jesus. Man, he, there's this hard situation. Like, if I'm in this situation, this is the law of Moses, and I'm right in front of all these people having to, you know, make this call. Jesus is so awesome here. He doesn't react. He doesn't jump up right away. He pauses, dramatically draws something on the ground. I've heard, like, 30 sim sermons about the different things he wrote there. Everyone's got it figured out except it doesn't say it in the Bible, so whatever. Um, the, um, and uh, he pauses this moment, dramatically up, comes up with this great liner, he is without sin, cast the first stone. Boom, great moment. Everyone is so shell-shocked, they don't know what to do. They just slowly walk away. Awesome, cool moment. Jesus is so wise, he is so smart. He has a follow-up awesome line for this woman. Not only does he keep this woman from being stoned, he also continues the standard of, hey, go and sin no more. Go live a life free of sin. That's awesome, right? That's great. That's so cool. Oh man, Jesus is so merciful. Jesus is so smart. He's so wise. He took this intense situation and made it so peaceful. I love that. That's awesome. That is so cool. I love following this Jesus. You sound a little scared like I'm about to have the other shoe drop. <laughs> Fear not, my children. <laughs> um, I love that story, and there's a bunch of stories like that where Jesus, you know, I love it when I love it whenever the Pharisees show up because Jesus just has something clever to say. He has something. He has a, a moment of repentance, not oh you're bad, you're wrong, but an adjustment in perspective of hey, this is the intention of those laws. This is the intention of those scriptures. It's a beautiful, wonderful checkpoint. Um, but now I'd like to take you to a different story. And if I'm being honest, can I can I be honest with you guys? Can I be honest with you, internet people? Of course I can. Everyone else does. Um, sorry, Facebook joke. Anyway, uh, the, uh, this is my least favorite thing that Jesus did, this next story. It bothers me. If I'm being honest, this is my least favorite thing that Jesus did in the Bible. So before you decide to stone me, uh, let's go... <laughs> To a little bit back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And 
Let's go with uh, verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Exclamation point. His disciples remembered what is written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Man. I, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, if I'm being honest with my personality, my, my personal style, I, I, you know, man, Jesus, why, you went and made a whip, and you came in, and you kicked the tables over, you knocked the coins everywhere, you yelled at people, ah, man, didn't you, don't you have like a cool one-liner for that one, you know, like a, couldn't you walk in and say something super wise that just suddenly brings conviction to everyone's heart and everyone suddenly quietly puts all their stuff away and probably gives their money to the poor? You know, it's this whole, whole, you know, what, what happened? And again, for as long as I've been a Christian, which is now 31 years, that story has bothered me. But I'm not a disciple of Jesus' wisdom. I'm not a disciple of Jesus' philosophy. (laughs) I'm not a disciple of Jesus' parables. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So it doesn't really matter if I like what he did or not, or if I think, if I, I, you know, again, I, I... I would never normally say out loud that I don't like what Jesus did because I know in my head automatically you're supposed to like what Jesus did. You know, that, them's the rules, you know. Um, but I think it's very important for us to recognize aspects of who Jesus is that might be friction points between our nature or what we prefer or the things that we like best about what he did while he was here on earth and what he's doing now. Because if we don't recognize those frictions points without knowing it, we will subtly steer away from them until we're missing part of Jesus. And instead of being a disciple of Jesus, we are a disciple of Jesus' philosophy, a disciple of his miracles, a disciple of his parables maybe, but not fully a disciple of him. Does that make sense? Um. We're, on, we're in an interesting age right now, I would say. A couple different reasons for that. Quite a few, actually. Um, in, in my head, I've been, I've been calling it uh, the, the age of the reaction. This is, this is Blake's internal uh, uh, historical mindset. Um, where, you know, anyone go on the internet at all? Everyone near the internet? I use it sometimes. Some of you aren't raising your hand. I'm pretty sure you're lying, but it's okay. <laughs> um, are you on the internet right now? You're doing it right now, just so you know. Um, anyone in every, any level of society does anything, and there are 
thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of reactions, responses, ideas, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, I like discourse. I like talking. I like discussion. I like the exchange of different ideas and opinions. I like people who think very differently being in the same room and talking about that through um, in a you know, mutually honorable way. I know it sounds like a fantasy, but, um, <laughs> but I, I've noticed a trend, and uh, unfortunately, I feel like I see it just as much in my Christian brothers and sisters as I do just about everywhere else, which is that something happens, whatever it is, and I'm, I'm intentionally leaving this really wide for, for this portion here because there's all kinds of things, and you can think of 30 things from good things to bad things to things that are debatable and all the way through. Um, everyone has this instant reaction. We are living in an age where it is more possible to get your opinion out there than it ever has before. And what's interesting, I'm not going to call it scary because it's just something that requires stewardship, is that based on trying to make you have a nice experience, all of these uh, online tools that we use like Facebook, YouTube, and, all, and Google, and all these different things, tailor make the kinds of things that we see. If I'm searching for this, they will give me more of that. And they will make sure my YouTube videos have more of this. And they'll hook me up with Facebook posts that have more of that. Basically, it's never been easy to find people who have the same opinion as you and get in a room and talk about how great all your opinions are. Um, now again, I I'm, I'm sound like a 34-year-old cantankerous old man. I'm sorry. But it's... I like that. I like discourse. I like people with similar views and, and similar beliefs being together. That's what's happening right now. We're all here together because we love Jesus. And that's beautiful and awesome. Um, and uh, this is a prelude to where, to where I'm going next. But I think it's so important that in an age where it has never been easier for people to hear what is on your heart the level of personal responsibility of representing Jesus has never been higher. Has never been higher. And, you know, if you guys know me or see me on social media, you know I'm not on social media uh, just because I just, I'm not interested, but that's just me. But anytime I do post something, I have this little thing and I'm, I'm trying to stretch this muscle of, is this what Jesus would say? Is this what Jesus is inviting me to say? And th this is a little bit of a, of a cul-de-sac that we'll back up to. Uh, this is not a social media message, but a as a quick visit to that cul-de-sac so that we can leave, um, please remember that to someone out there, you're the only picture of Jesus they'll ever see. And I don't say that to put a false burden on you. I, I say that so that you'd recognize what's already happening. What is, what is the truth? And that's not a social media thing. That's been all of human history. To someone, you're the only picture of Jesus they may ever see. And so I don't want that to make us overly cautious or, or just post scriptures and be done with it. Uh, but I want us to remember that we are Jesus' disciples who are called to represent him. And I, and I want to take just one more moment to... Um, to draw a picture of why this is so important. And 
Uh, again, if you've been around here a while, you know I'm a fan of history. Um, and there's one little historical moment. I think I've shared it once before in brief here on a sermon once. But um, there's this really, when you look back at history and you study history, there's all these tipping points. And you can look at these tipping points and be like, man, if this went a little bit different, the whole world would be a completely different place right now. If, you know, if this happened, if that happened, you know, and, you know, I don't have time to get into all that. We can do that afterwards if you want to nerd out with me over history. But um, so in, in the mid-1200s, uh, Genghis Khan's grandson, who was named uh, Guyuk Khan, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, so I apologize if there's any Mongols in the audience, um, uh, started uh, expanding his grandfather's empire more towards the west, more towards Europe. And again, Genghis Khan uh, created one of the largest empires in history, uh, perhaps even the largest empire. Um, again, debatable, but uh, he had this huge chunk of land that he had conquered, and you know, he's a pretty rough guy, you know, fighting and all that. Um, and his grandson was expanding that westward towards, towards Europe. And as he expanded westward, he ran into all these people, these new people called Christians who had been expanding uh, eastward as, as time had gone. Now, you know, uh, Genghis, Khan, uh, Genghis Khan and his grandson were more of the uh, conquering, you know, seizing and plundering types. So he would conquer these cities and take anyone who was alive as, as servants or, or slaves in his, in his camp. And he noticed that these, these Christians were like really good workers and would be like respectful and they would like tell the truth and things like that. And so he grabbed one of his, these Christians and he said, hey, like, what's your, what's your, what's your deal? Like, why are you guys different than, than the other people? I said, oh, well, we're Christians and, you know, uh, these are our values. These are what we do. And it's like, oh, great. Like, who's, who's, who's the king Christian? Who's the, who's the top of that? Well, you know, again, this is frame of, of reference. He says, well, I, you know, I guess that'd be the pope, you know. So, okay, great. Uh, let, let me talk to this pope. And which turned out great because the Pope was uh, getting nervous about these uh, invading armies coming and slowly taking their lands and very quickly moving towards, towards uh, the rest of Europe. And so the Pope uh, responded by sending two emissaries. Now, this is this uh, Guyu Kang guy saying, hey, tell me about what you got going on. Tell me about this Christianity thing I want to know because I see something different. And so the Pope sends two letters because he had two jobs to do. Uh, Letter number one was his description of Christianity. I'd like to, and I'd like to read just a, a little bit of this to you, if I could. It was the 1200s, so, you know, the language is a little bit different um, in that it's Latin. Um, uh, but, yes, this is a translated version. I'm not going to go full, <laughs> full there. But I just want to give you a little picture here. Now, obviously, again, the kind of word usage and things like that is a little bit different, but, but just roll with me here. Okay. <clears throat> so this is the first letter the Pope sent to this uh, conquering emperor, if you will, um, or conquering Khan in this case, uh, he said, uh, God the Father of his graciousness regarding with unutterable loving kindness the unhappy lot of the human race, brought low by the guilt of the first man and desiring of his exceeding great charity mercifully to restore him, whom the devil's envy overthrew by crafty suggestion, sent from the lofty throne of heaven down to the lowly region of the world his only begotten son. 
consuetable with himself, he was conceived by the, by the operation of the Holy Ghost in the womb of a forechosen virgin, and there clothed in garb of human flesh. And afterwards, proceeding thence by the closed door of his mother's virginity, he showed himself in form visible to all men. For human nature, being endowed with reason, was meant to be nourished or on eternal truth as is its choicest food, but held in mortal chains as a punishment for sin. Its powers were thus far reduced, that is, to strive to understand the invisible things of reason's food by means of inferences drawn from visible things. So his response to that letter was basically, what? <laughs> it goes on for like eight more pages like that. Um, and this Khan who is saying, hey, you guys are acting different. What is your thing? Seeks, hey, why are you different? And this person, and again, it's, it's really easy to judge people's motivations when you're not there, and it's, you know, hundreds of years in the past and all that kind of stuff, and, or in this case, thousands. Um, but in this moment where someone is seeking, even, even people who are linguists who look at the language back at the time as it would have been understood, uh, sent a very Christianese, uh, very metaphorical picture of the gospel that was uh, condescending and, and um, belittling of him, uh, of, Con, of the Khan and his, his culture. And then follow that up with a letter of, hey, you better stop conquering anything because God's going to be so mad at you. He is going to kill you and destroy you. Also, you should get baptized. And the Khan writes back this letter of like, I, I don't get what you're talking about. You're, 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 I don't understand what you're saying about this godchild and a virgin. This is, this is confusing to me. And basically says, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to come conquer you. And he changes his mind a little bit later, which is a different story. But um, So at, at that point, Genghis Khan's empire, which had been inherited by his son and grandson, uh, encompassed the majority of modern-day China and, and the majority of Asia. If that emperor, if that Khan at that time had, had, had been able to meet the real Jesus in that moment when he was seeking this, the world would be a different place right now. History would be different. Maybe there wouldn't have been people dying in an underground church in China for years and years and years and years because maybe that battle would have already been won. <laughs> I know that's heavy, but also that's reality because we are carrying something that is desperately needed on the earth. <laughs> we are carrying the kingdom of God within us. We inherited the kingdom when we accepted Jesus and we are releasing that kingdom as ambassadors of that kingdom. And if we don't make choices that reveal that kingdom, then our children will have to. And their children and their children after them. And so, again, this is a heavy thing. My, I want to I share one, one more story. Another one of those great, like, you know, corrective uh, moments that Jesus has with uh, someone. Another, another him discipling, adjusting, changing perspective. This is a great one. Um, 
This one's in Matthew 19, or at least the version that I like best is in Matthew 19. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breeze through this familiar story for most of us, but uh, just then a man came up. Uh, we're going to start in ver- Matthew 19. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Uh, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Uh, which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want to pause here because this is another one of those areas where we have this uh, tendency to, you know, get onto some weird stuff of like, ah, money is evil and bad and, you know, rich people are bad and all this stuff that's uh, not what he's saying right here. Um... And I just want to draw, just for a moment, a framework here. Um, you know, in this time, uh, and it would be true enough now as well, but Jesus is asking, hey, give all you have away and give it to the poor. Now, I don't know if this guy inherited his wealth, worked hard for his wealth, or, or anything in between. But I do imagine that giving away his wealth is him giving away security for himself his family, and his children, and their children. And so what Jesus is not asking is not just, hey, give your money away. This is very real, practical security, uh, safety, um, in, a, in a time and place where there was no support system if you did not have your own means to support yourself. And so, I, again, it's... I think sometimes in these sort of situations, because we know how the story ends, it can be easy to judge the folks. But that's a hard ask, you know, to give up what you, you have perhaps either worked hard to get or worked hard to keep, to give up security for yourself and your children and their children and probably their children afterwards. That is, that is a huge, huge thing to ask. In fact, it is such a huge thing to ask that... Even the disciples, most of whom were, were you know, laborers, fishermen, that, that kind of, there's a, there's a few who had, you know, uh, wealth in the background, but most of whom who uh, were, you know, blue-collar workers, if you will, said, uh, this is verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is a really big relief, <laughs> Because being a disciple of Jesus is not being good enough to achieve Jesus' standard. The point of this story is that that's impossible. It is only with God. It is only by, by receiving the grace that God has for us that we can grow into true disciples of him. That we can actually even recognize the correction. When we see something political go up and we have our history, our background, and our belief system rise up with an opinion, it is only by the grace of God that we can hear something that might be different or an altered perspective on that opinion. But I want us to be looking for these things because we are not disciples of 
what is right. We are not disciples of the right philosophy. We are disciples of Jesus, who is rightness itself, who is good itself. Is this making sense? It's so important to remember because I don't have time to get into it now, but history is, is full of people who died on a hill to protect something that they thought was Jesus, but wasn't. It is only by maintaining an attitude of a disciple, a learner, someone who is following someone else who is leading, that we can continually be led by him into where he is going. And just to wrap up here, this is the kind of message that could apply to about 100 things that are going on right now. Um, I'm not talking about any specific one right now. We've been talking about some of those in past weeks. But what I'm talking about right now is an attitude, is a mindset. And again, if we get in that mindset of like, oh, are you, if you are right now thinking, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this message, and so-and-so really needs to hear this message, that is a wonderful indication that you probably really need to hear this message. It is really easy to get comfortable in Jesus and find the three things that Jesus does that we really like and let that be our whole picture of who he is. But that wasn't really the experience that the disciples had. He was consistently adjusting their perspective, doing things they didn't expect, doing things in ways they didn't expect. And I think that if we want to be on the forefront of releasing his kingdom on the earth, then we need to be willing to follow him rather than follow our opinion, our experience, our past, or the other people who agree with us. Does that make sense? And yes, I realize that makes it really messy and <laughs> wide. That's the experience that I saw with these people who are following Jesus is you are following someone who is moving. Is this making sense? All right, stand up real quick, if you would. If you're going to pass out from a heat stroke, feel free to sit down. <laughs> um, There are, there are hundreds of destinies that the Lord is ready to unleash in this room right now. There are things in this world that are going on right now that bother you. That is the call of God on your life right now to release his kingdom into that area. And I believe that if we position ourselves as disciples to him, we will see we will see the change that we want to see in the world. We will see growth. We will see hearts one to him, not just in, in uh, being led to Jesus, but into led to also be people who perpetuate his kingdom on the earth. And I want to pray for all of you right now because I, in the last 10 years, a word that just keeps popping up, it's, it's one of the words from the Lord that pops in my head every time I lay my head on the pillow at night is we've heard prophecies for years of a massive revival, of a worldwide revival, of the greatest revival that has ever been seen in all of Christianity. 
And I believe that that revival will not come through an anointed few or an anointed individual, but it will come through the children of God rising up as disciples of Jesus and revealing his kingdom in millions of areas of the world all at the same time, in millions of layers, on every layer of society, in every layer of industry, in every layer of culture, piece by piece by piece, revealing who he is again and again and again. And every single person in this, I was going to say room, that's inaccurate, in this area and also on this stream is called to release his kingdom in a specific, strategic, and powerful area of this world. There is no exception to that. Every person here is called to do that. So I'm going to pray for you right now because if you want that, then I encourage you to continue your path as a disciple of Jesus, to learn who you are following and how you are following him, how to recognize his voice, how to recognize who he is and how he's represented himself in the written word, how, how that you can hear him so well so that you can hear him over your own opinion, over your own ideas, over the impressions and opinions of others, that you can hear him guiding you because that is what he's doing right now. So just put your hands out in front of you. Lord, I thank you for this army of disciples these people who are, who are the inheritance of your work while you're here on earth. These people who are the manifestation of, of what you started in us. I thank you for these people who have served you, who have followed you, who have sacrificed, who have sold all they had, who have paid a price. There are so many prices paid in this room. And right now, I just release the grace because it has to come from you, the grace to continue as a disciple of Jesus, to be led by you, to be led by you in our opinions, to be led by you on our platforms, to be led by you as, as we hear feedback come, as we see the world do this and do that, that we would be led led by you without exception, without exception. And I just release the truth that it is not about us working hard enough, doing well enough, or doing good enough. It is impossible without you. And so we right now stand and just receive the grace that you have to release us as disciples into all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.